Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, I discuss the idea of vocation, what Jung calls our proper life task, and explore the challenges that come with taking up such a task in our own lives. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Please forgive me if I don't go into your questions. Lack of time, unfortunately, makes it quite impossible for me to write long letters. I would only remark that our proper life task must necessarily appear impossible for us, for only then can we be certain that all our latent powers will be brought into play. Perhaps this is an optical illusion born of inner compulsion, but at any rate, that is how it feels. One of the primary aims of the practice of the symbolic life is the development of a flexible imagination. Symbolic thinking has a different purpose than conceptual thinking. A concept is meant to be objective. It points to an idea that has been generalized and which, therefore, has a more or less uniform meaning independent of the mind that is thinking it. A symbolic image, on the other hand, gives expression to what is ultimately inexpressible. It cannot be separated from our subjective experience. Its meaning comes from the way it involves the individual with the intangible and even mysterious depths of his or her own existence. As Jung writes, concepts are coined and negotiable values. Images are life. What it means to be a human being and to live a human life cannot be reduced to any conceptual formula. And it's not an understanding we are born with, at least not consciously. We have to be initiated into an understanding of life, its meaning, its purpose, its demands and goals. And this, of course, comes through our family, our culture, our peers, and whatever ideas we are exposed to or seek out for ourselves. The quality of the ideas and beliefs by which we are initiated will determine the quality of our experience of life. When we hear Jung in our opening quote talk about 
our proper life task then. Everything depends on the ideas through which we hear and understand what he is saying. That is, do we have an adequate imagination for this notion of a life task? What does it mean to us? What image does it call up in our minds? What worldview determines how we receive these words? One view, I believe, that immediately gets in the way for many people is the economic one. Our imagination of work has become so entangled with the necessities of earning one's livelihood that we have difficulty conceiving of a life task that is separate from the way we earn money. Vocation has become confused with occupation. Money has become the measure of value. As long as economics clouds the imagination of work, the less likely we are to take seriously the subtler calls of our being toward meaning and purpose. How many of our gifts are cast underfoot because we immediately judge them as not practical? How many inspirations wither under the glare of the stark light of the utilitarian mind? Looking through this lens puts us in danger of neglecting our innermost needs at the expense of our outward necessities. To be satiated with necessities is no doubt an inestimable source of happiness, writes Jung. Yet the inner man continues to raise his claim, and this can be satisfied by no outward possessions. Now, I certainly don't mean to deny the importance of economic considerations in life. But it's important to recognize that when these are applied in a sweeping way to all situations and activities, they tend to obliterate the consideration of that which is unique and quirky, particular and private. The outward self eclipses the inner self. The collective person subsumes the individual. The soul is lost. To imagine our life task as something like a vocation, a calling, is not to ignore the economic realities of life. Rather, it is to include within our worldview the emotional, psychological, and spiritual realities of living as well. Of course, we also have to be careful when we use words like vocation and calling, in case they rouse in us unattainable visions of some cosmic undertaking more fit for a saint or a superhero than an ordinary human being. That task also is a vocation that is humble and of a human scale. So long as it is an expression of something real and unique in us. We need to make room in our imagination of this domain of human life for everything from simply becoming a parent to serving a great cause, from nurturing the talents of others to taking the risk of displaying our own talents before the world. 
vocation is as much about our identity as it is about the content of the work we are moved to perform. In his book, A Life at Work, Thomas Moore gives the following definition of a calling. He writes, A calling is a sensation or intuition that life wants something from you. It can give meaning to the smallest acts and helps create a strong identity. If you have a reason for being, you don't feel entirely aimless. You know who you are and what to do. In a culture where existential anxiety, the worry that nothing is of value and nothing makes sense, is still the order of the day, these are valuable realizations. One's life task, then, has an organizing and centering effect in one's life. You know who you are and what to do, as Moore says. And I would even suggest that we could alter this a little and say, because you know who you are, you know what to do. What calls to us is that which naturally flows out of us when we are living in harmony with our own nature. It is the individual, Jung insists, not the mass man or woman, through whom life is expressed, by whom life is carried forward. But every carrier, he writes, is charged with an individual destiny and destination, and the realization of these alone makes sense of life. Another note of caution is warranted here. To be an individual and to be separate from the collective does not simply mean being eccentric or adopting a kind of self-conscious non-conformity. It doesn't necessarily mean just doing things you like or even that you want to do. Remember Moore's definition of a calling, a sensation or intuition that life wants something from you. Our individuality and by extension our life task emerges at the point where our peculiar nature meets the world. And we could also put this the other way around and say, life is the testing ground that reveals to us who we are and what we might do. And I think it is, in part at least, this quality of something being asked of us that leads Jung to say, our proper life task must necessarily appear impossible to us. If we accept this way of living in the world, we set aside the fiction that we are masters of our fate, that we shape our own destiny. Instead, we open ourselves to being shaped by life. But this means often feeling like more is being asked of us than we know how to give. And only then, says Jung, can we be certain that all our latent powers will be brought into play.
Now, it's fair to say that Jung speaks with some authority on this subject. The notion of a life task was no mere theoretical conception for him. It was a lived experience. During the period of his life that he calls his confrontation with the unconscious, when he was almost overwhelmed by his own inner images, all the profound fantasy material that would become his famous Red Book, Jung developed a deep conviction that what he had encountered in his own inner life held meaning and value not only for himself, but for others as well. The psychic material that confronted him from the unconscious became the raw material of his life's work. His personal experience, the impetus for the body of psychological insight that he would leave to the world. Of that critical time in his life, he wrote, It was then that I ceased to belong to myself alone, ceased to have the right to do so. From then on, my life belonged to the generality. It was then that I dedicated myself to service of the psyche. I loved it and hated it, but it was my greatest wealth. My delivering myself over to it, as it were, was the only way by which I could endure my existence and live it as fully as possible. Each life, in its own way, yields up raw material for some work. More often than not, of course, it will be a much humbler enterprise than the founding of a school of psychology, but nevertheless, it will be real and valid and important. The challenge we face is to take ourselves seriously, to learn to trust the promptings of the heart, and to have the courage and maturity to go our own way. And more than this, because what calls to us will feel at times impossible, will seem too much or too hard or even too insignificant to bother, because we will be tempted to shrink back from it, and will, in fact, shrink back from it more times than we care to admit, because we will never, in the end, be able to shake off our doubts and insecurities. The great challenge will be to be able to say yes to those tasks that life gives to us to deliver ourselves over to them, as Jung puts it, and to live them as fully as possible. As Marie-Louise von Franz states, it makes a difference whether we say yes to our fate and fulfill it positively, or say no and are dragged by it against our will. So I want to turn here to a Native American story that gives a wonderful symbolic expression to the themes that I've been exploring in this episode so far. 
This is a small section of a story called The Orphan Boy and the Elk Dog. The orphan of the story is the figure of Long Arrow, who feels called to perform a difficult task in order to find his rightful place within his tribe. He sets out to find a mysterious animal called the Elk Dog. He travels for a long time until he comes to the great mystery lake. Exhausted from his long journey, he falls asleep on the edge of the lake. And it is at this point that we pick up the story. When Long Arrow awoke, the sun was already high. He opened his eyes and saw a beautiful child standing before him, a boy in a dazzling white buckskin robe decorated with porcupine quills of many colors. The boy said, We have been expecting you for a long time. My grandfather invites you to his lodge. Follow me. Telling his dog to wait, Long Arrow took his medicine shield and his grandfather's bow and went with the wonderful child. They came to the edge of the lake. The spirit boy pointed to the water and said, My grandfather's lodge is down there. Come. The child turned himself into a kingfisher and dove straight to the bottom. Afraid, Long Arrow thought, how can I follow him and not be drowned? But then he said to himself, I knew all the time that this would not be easy. In setting out to find the elk dog, I already threw my life away. And he boldly jumped into the water. To his surprise, he found it did not make him wet that it parted before him, that he could breathe and see. He touched the lake's sandy bottom. It sloped down, down toward a center point. Long Arrow descended this slope until he came to a small, flat valley. In the middle of it stood a large teepee of tanned buffalo hide. The images of two strange animals were drawn on it in sacred vermilion paint. A kingfisher, perched high on the top of the teepee, flew down and turned again into the beautiful boy who said, Welcome. Enter my grandfather's lodge. Long Arrow followed the spirit boy inside. In the back at the seat of honor, sat a black-robed old man with flowing white hair and such power emanating from him that Long Arrow felt himself in the presence of a truly great one. The holy man welcomed Long Arrow and offered him food. After Long Arrow had stilled his hunger, the old spirit chief filled the pipe and passed it to his guest. They smoked, praying silently. After a while, the old man said, Some came before you from time to time, but they were always afraid of the deep water, and so they went away with empty hands. 
But you, grandson, you were brave enough to plunge in, and therefore you are chosen to receive a wonderful gift to carry back to your people. There are countless reasons to hold ourselves back from those tasks that appeal to our secret hearts. A not unjustified fear of the unknown can keep us clinging to the main streets, wide and well-lit as they are, and avoiding the darker, winding paths that branch off from them. Unless we are naive, we will have to wrestle with the authenticity of the inner voice that calls to us. How can we be sure we are not deceiving ourselves with mere wishful thinking? We will doubt our capacities. Are we talented enough, courageous enough, worthy enough to put our potentials to the test? Furthermore, there is no guarantee of success. There are no assurances that everything will work out the way we hope. To pursue one's proper life task is not something to take lightly. Jung, in fact, puts the issue bluntly. The problems of the inner voice are full of pitfalls and hidden snares, treacherous, slippery ground as dangerous and pathless as life itself once one lets go of the railings. But he who cannot lose his life, neither shall he save it. Faced with the prospect of having to dive down to the bottom of Great Mystery Lake, Long Arrow becomes afraid. He voices the concern that all feel on the brink of making the move into a larger life. How can I follow and not be drowned? But then he remembers that in pursuing his goal, he has already left his old life behind. He has already, to use Jung's phrase, let go of the railings. And so he reminds himself I knew all the time that this would not be easy. In setting out to find the elk dog, I already threw my life away. And with that, he plunges in. And for the takeaway here at the end, I want to reach back to the beginning, to Jung's statement from our opening quote, our proper life task must necessarily appear impossible to us. For only then can we be certain that our latent powers will be brought into play. It is helpful for us to recognize the stakes that confront us in such an undertaking. On the one hand, as I just noted, we must realize that the way is full of dangers and uncertainties. We cannot afford to be either naive or impulsive. On the other hand, the idea of a life task, regardless of the perils involved, restores a dignity to even the smallest 
ventures we pursue. We are reminded that what we do matters. Who we become makes a difference. Ultimately, our proper life task is not just about self-gratification. It is an important value that we bring to the world in some way. In our story, the old spirit chief says to Long Arrow, but you, grandson, were brave enough to plunge in, and therefore you are chosen to receive a wonderful gift to carry back to your people. And that is the key. In the end, in the face of all that holds us back, all our fears and doubts, all the uncertainties of whether we will be successful or fail, all the skepticism we will face from friend and foe alike, the task is to throw ourselves into the waters of life and discover the treasures that are hidden in their depths. Once, on a trip to the United States to give several lectures, Jung sat down with a small gathering of people and offered some impromptu remarks. During the course of that evening, he made the following statement, which feels like an appropriate way to close this episode. We must make our experiment, he said. We must make mistakes. We must live out our own vision of life, and there will be error. If you avoid error, you do not live. I'll be back in just a minute with this week's parting words. You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the Support the Show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. In the last episode, Receiving One's True Name, episode three from this third season, I spoke about the writer George MacDonald, discussing one of his sermons on the theme of the true name. And here I want to share an excerpt from a fairy tale that he wrote called The Golden Key. In this scene, a character named Tangle is in search of the country whence the shadows fall. She goes to the old man of the earth to see if he knows the way. He doesn't, but he directs her to go see the old man of the fire, who is older and wiser and surely does know the way. 
He tells her that the only way to the dwelling of the old man of the fire is by a hidden river. And then there follows this exchange. The old man of the earth stooped over the floor of the cave, raised a huge stone from it, and left it leaning. It disclosed a great hole that went plumb down. That is the way, he said. But there are no stairs. You must throw yourself in. There is no other way. Until next time.